I'd like to welcome you to Faneuil Hall, the cradle of liberty, where the war for independence was hatched. You should be standing outside facing the back entrance of a big red building with white windows and gray doors. Behind you is a big white column building with gold letters that say Quincy Market. This hall is called the Cradle of Liberty because it was one of the most important meeting places for the Founding Fathers of America, the original Boston Patriots. And after all, Boston is where the American Revolution started. Today, I'm going to tell you how that happened over a few pints. I'm Jenny Zagrino, comedian, revolutionary history aficionado, and lover of America, freedom, and a smooth cocktail, just like the Founding Fathers. And although I did my fair share of tours on the Freedom Trail, this is a story not often told, there or anywhere else. Are you on the edge of your seat now? In a moment, we're going to go inside the Great Hall. If for some reason the hall's closed today, don't worry. You can listen from right here, and I'll show you some photos so you don't feel like you're missing out. Okay, let's go into the Great Hall. You should see two wooden doors, basically smack dab in the middle of the building. There's a sign that says Great Hall to help guide you. Go inside those doors and head up the wooden stairs inside. You'll be greeted by some staff. Say hello. At the top of the stairs, walk through the doors down the middle aisle towards the stage and stop in front of it. Are you in front of the stage? Okay, so it all started in the 1770s when this room would have been packed full of furious Bostonians raging about the evils of the British crown, spurred on by the rapid-fire speeches of the leading voices of colonial descent. In those days, that stage would have been like the who's who of founding fathers, the original American idols. You can see some of them up there now. See those two portraits hanging up above the railing of the stairs to the right of the stage? That's Sam Adams and John Hancock. Hello there. Charmed. And just above the stage, you probably recognize the portrait of George Washington. You may recognize me from the $1 bill. So all these guys in white powdered wigs got together in fancy, important rooms like this one, gave speeches about liberty, and just like that, the American Revolution was on. Right? Well, not exactly. As important as the speeches in this room were, they weren't enough on their own. The Founding Fathers needed to get the support of ordinary Bostonians. And to get their message out, they had to go to the places where ordinary Bostonians spent their time. The bars, the taverns, the pubs. That's right. The Revolutionary Army was formed and the opening shots of the resistance were planned in some of Boston's original watering holes. It all culminated when a guy you may have heard of, Paul Revere, went tearing through the streets on horseback in the dead of night, stopping in those very taverns to warn of impending invasion and to incite those passionate drunks to take to the streets in the name of freedom and overthrow the tyrannical government. That's right, booze, hooch, the hard stuff. Whatever it is you want to call your particular brand of poison, without alcohol, there may have been no revolutionary war, and without drinking, there may have been no America. These Bostonians knocked him back, and the whiskey in their veins fueled the fires of action. And that, my friends, is the American Revolution I'm going to tell you about today. Now, with all this talk of drinking, I know you're probably wondering, hey, I thought there were supposed to be drinks on this tour. Hold your horses, you booze hound, okay? I'm getting to it. But there's someone I want you to meet first. 
turn around and head back towards the entrance of Faneuil Hall and stop at the doors just before the stairs. Look up ahead at the wall, just to the right of the entrance. See that portrait of a man dressed in all black? It's the one just above the sconce lamp. The man in this painting is Dr. Joseph Warren, a courageous champion for independence. And he definitely wasn't afraid to express his thoughts. In 1773, at the height of tensions between the colonists and the crown, he donned a Roman toga while defiantly addressing his fellow revolutionaries. And he did it in plain view of the Redcoats, no less. You are to decide the important question on which rests the happiness and liberty of millions yet unborn. You will maintain your rights or perish in the glorious, generous struggle. However difficult the combat, you will never decline when freedom is the prize. A rousing speech like that by a crazy doctor in a toga? Sounds like my kind of party. But more on the good doctor a little later. Okay, let's go back down the stairs the way we came and head outside through the same doors. With your back to the hall, make a left and start walking towards the corner of the building. Make a left here and keep walking towards the front of the building, keeping Faneuil Hall on your left. Keep walking straight to the front of the building. Despite the toga speech, Dr. Warren was considered fairly even-keeled and universally respected for his sound judgment. When it came to rabble-rousing, though, Samuel Adams was the expert. We mainly know him as a brewmaster, but actually, Sam was never really any good at making beer. In fact, he ran his father's malt house into the ground. But he was a way better agitator, also known as a shit starter. And where did this agitator like to spend his evenings? Speaking to his fellow defiant men in taverns, of course. In fact, Samuel Adams spent so much time in the pubs that his foes referred to him as Sam the Publican. I do like a good beer with friends. Keep walking. Go around to the front of the statue. Okay, stop in front of the statue and look up at this guy. Pretty sexy, right? That's Sam Adams. Go on, wave. No one's watching. No one will think you're weird. You're being so weird right now. But seriously, look at Sam's pose. With his hands crossed over his chest, Samuel Adams was a defiant dude. Now, Sam was not only an avid proponent of drinking, he was also an avid proponent of no taxation without representation. Simply put, in the 1760s, the Crown's taxes were so high that colonists were paying through the nose on everyday goods, things as common as tea and paper. And without any representation in the British government, colonists were pissed that they were paying taxes they had never even voted for. Instigator that he was, Sam Adams wasn't going to take this sitting down. So in 1768, he wrote the Massachusetts Circular Letter, calling for all colonists to defy authorities. Good old King George III didn't like that, so he sent the British Army to keep the Boston colonists in line. Oh, good! Unwanted British military presence! You can imagine how that went. Oh, wait, you don't have to. The Boston Massacre is how it went. Yeah. Five colonists killed in the streets of Boston by British soldiers. Facing Sam's statue, look to your right, far past the tree on the sidewalk. You should see a small, older brick building in between two tall skyscrapers. 
Take a look at the golden horses on the rooftop. That's the old state house, and the Boston Massacre happened right there in front of it. Now, this was more than just about taxes. It was about redcoats firing into the crowd of protesters that day. And you can bet that Sam Adams and his fellow patriots weren't about to let that go. They started the Committee of Correspondence, which, I know, it sounds like a boring letter-writing club, but it was actually a way for the rebels to communicate with each other and the rebellion throughout the colonies, right under the noses of the Redcoats. The rebels also started a bunch of other clubs, most famous of them being the Sons of Liberty, in which Sam was the leader. And all these clubs had one message for the British crown. It could go straight to hell. Okay, my little sons and daughters of liberty. Are you ready to make your way to our first watering hole? Let's go drink. Facing the front of the Sam Adams statue, turn left and start walking toward the corner up ahead to the big white crosswalk. By 1770, the average Bostonian hated two things, taxes and being told what to do by a bunch of redcoats. Also, they hated New York. They've always hated New York. Because the water in Boston wasn't potable back then, everyone, including children, was drinking around five pints of alcohol a day. When you get to the corner, you'll see a small park with benches across the street. Hit the crosswalk button and carefully cross in that direction. I'll meet you on the other side. Turn right and continue walking with the park on your left side. All that beer, plus the colonists' already healthy hatred of the crown, was a strong recipe for rebellion. Carefully cross the street to the corner ahead and turn left. Let's make a left here and keep walking. So Sam and the other patriots headed to the bars to recruit these angry Bostonians into action. This is where our story really starts to get good. And not just because it involves booze. Although, let's be clear. It does involve booze. I like booze. Yes, Sam, we know you like booze. Take a look at all these old buildings on your right. This is the start of the Blackstone Block, and it's the last part of Boston that still looks the way it did back in 1776. Carefully cross the alleyways as you continue walking. Up ahead on the right is the Union Oyster House, and this building has been around since the early 1700s. And starting in 1770, up on the second floor, a printing press published the highly circulated Massachusetts Spy. This illegal newspaper secretly delivered information about the revolution to Bostonians. Pubs were the center of daily life for colonists. It was where they got their news, picked up their mail, and of course, listened to their fellow man rail against the evils of the British crown. And our first stop is arguably the most important bar in the revolution, the Green Dragon. Bear right past the Union Oyster House. You see it there? Historians call the Green Dragon the headquarters of the revolution. And that's why we're stopping here first. Stop in front of the red wooden sign with the gold lettering. Welcome to the Green Dragon. In a minute, we're going to go inside and find a spot at the bar to order a beer. Sam always recommends his lager, but you do what you gotta do. If anyone asks, just tell them you're with Detour. After you get settled, press play and I will tell you about this place. Okay, pause me and go inside.
Got your drink? Great. The pub is a tribute to the original Green Dragon, as you can see by the replica sign hanging in the center of the room. The original site is actually about 500 feet from here, but was demolished in 1854 and has since become a parking lot. And I promise you, it is way more fun to drink here than in a parking lot. So by this point in time, in the early 1770s, the Patriots now have leaders, a sort of an officialish public meeting place in Faneuil Hall, a newspaper of sorts, all the alcohol a man could ever need, and the majority of Boston rallying behind them. So what do they do next? Why, they planned and executed Escalating Acts Rebellion, of course. And you can't plan secret subversive acts without a secret headquarters. Luckily, the Sons of Liberty had the Green Dragon. The Green Dragon was originally purchased for use as a new lodge for the St. Andrews Freemason Society in 1764, complete with the tavern in the basement. The Freemasons are one of the oldest secret societies, and the Founding Fathers were all about secret societies. Nothing needs a special clubhouse where you can get loaded with your besties and devise a plot to overthrow your cruel British overlords. Am I right? Boston Freemasons, such as Dr. Joseph Warren, John Hancock, and Paul Revere, as well as a host of other patriots, all drank at the Green Dragon. Total business in the front and party in the back. In case it wasn't clear, the colonists loved their booze. But you know what else they loved? Tea! And the tea was a never-ending issue between the Redcoats and the American colonists. The price of tea, where the tea was coming from, the taxes on the tea, what you put in your tea, a little cream for me, of course, and on and on and on and on. It is a long and complicated story. The short version is by 1773, the situation become more tense than a Yankees versus Red Sox game at Fenway. Ships carrying tea from Britain were just sitting in the Boston Harbor. Boston colonists were not only refusing to buy the British tea, but they were refusing to even let the tea come into the city. They wanted it all to be sent back to England, but the British-appointed governor of Massachusetts wouldn't let the ships leave. So Sam Adams, you remember him, and the Sons of Liberty came up with another way to make sure the tea didn't come ashore. It was time for a good old-fashioned Boston Tea Party. On December 16th of 1773, after sitting in the Boston Harbor for 20 days, an unidentified group of men disguised as Mohawk Native Americans boarded the ships. Three hours later, and all 342 chests of British tea had been dumped into the water. And where did the revolutionaries plan this massive tea party? Legend has it, the Green Dragon, of course. And on that very evening, Lodge records show that only five members of the Sons of Liberty were present at the Green Dragon. So they closed early for the night due to poor attendance. Coincidence? I think not. But most importantly, the Green Dragon is where Sam Ballard, a young 13-year-old patriot, discovered British plans to capture two of our heroes, Sam Adams and John Hancock, while they were in Concord. See, the British drank at this bar too, and Sam Ballard overheard their plot and reported it to the tavern owner. Now remember that young man's name, Sam Ballard, because I'm going to tell you more about him a little later. Okay, if you need more time to finish your pint, you can pause me and press play when you're outside of the bar and ready to go. You know, but don't take forever. Okay, you with me? I want to show you a special house. 
With the doors of the green dragon to your back, turn right. Carefully cross this small alley and step in front of the house with the clear glass windows. This house was built around 1767-ish, and it's the only remaining building owned by John Hancock. It's also the oldest brick building still standing in the city. John Hancock is known for being the first to sign the Declaration of Independence, but he was also a wealthy businessman and a prominent patriot for the American Revolution. Hancock began his political career in Boston under the guidance of Samuel Adams, so you know he knew how to rally the masses behind a cause. John purchased this house for his less successful brother, Ebenezer, because, well, he was a pretty good brother. And once the war was in full swing, Ebenezer was invaluable to the cause. This same house was the pay station for the Revolutionary Army of Boston, and Ebenezer himself was the paymaster. That meant he was in charge of maintaining the wages for all the soldiers of the Eastern Continental Army. Wages, of course, were how everyone bought booze, so this house may have been the most important building in Boston. The house has a plaque on it, so you know it's true. Okay, with the Hancock house behind you, you should be staring at our next stop. Talk about bar hopping. See the sign for the bell in hand? It's pretty self-explanatory. It's a bell in a hand. That's because during this time, people couldn't read. It's right across the street, and that's where we're headed to next. So, carefully cross the street and stop just underneath the sign. Ah, the bell in hand. It's the oldest continuously operated pub in America. Okay, when we get in, you'll want to head to the long wooden bar on your left. If it's closed, there's another one up to your right. And I recommend the bell in hand ale. It's brewed exclusively for this pub by, you'll never guess, Samuel Adams. Okay, hit pause and head in, and once you're settled, press play. Got your bell in hand, Ale? So obviously, the pubs were an indispensable way for the patriots to plan rebellions, recruit new patriots, and also, you know, drink. But what about the non-initiated? Those who believed in independence but maybe weren't chomping at the bit to go join the Sons of Liberty or Jones in to go start a riot. How did the news of what the rebels were actually doing get to the rest of us? Well, that's where the town crier comes in. These dudes were hired by towns to make public announcements in the streets. Boston's last town crier, Jimmy Wilson, spread the news of the Boston Massacre, Boston Tea Party, and reports of the battles upstate to the colonists in the city during and leading up to the American Revolution. And guess what else Jimmy Wilson did? He was the owner of the Bell in Hand. Take a look at the low wooden bar where you ordered your beer. It's from the original Bell in Hand Tavern, where Paul Revere, a regular, would come in and throw back a few. By 1795, well after the Revolution, Jimmy had retired as the town crier. But he hadn't forgotten the tumultuous, tragic news he had reported to the Bostonians during the war and the role that alcohol played in escalating people's emotions. So Jimmy banned the hard stuff, and his bar only served his own special recipe of ale. It was rumored to have a head so thick that it required a second glass just to hold all of the foam. Now for the musical interlude as you enjoy your ale. This was a well-known ditty during the Revolution. All about Paul Revere, Dr. Joseph Warren, and the Boston Tea Party. 
In fact, it wouldn't be uncommon for Paul Revere to walk into one of his favorite watering holes like this one and hear people singing about him. Imagine singing this song as he walks through that door. Rally Mohawks and bring your axes. Tell King George we'll pay no taxes on his foreign tea. <laughs> it's... It's always so embarrassing when that happens. The man, the myth, the legend, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Revere! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, let's keep this midnight ride moving. Pause if you need to finish up your beer and press play when you are outside the same door we walked in. Okay, with the bell in hand behind you, make a left and start walking. As you walk, take a look at the street. See where those cobblestones end? Back in 1776, that's how narrow the streets were. Man, good thing we're not driving. At the corner up ahead, we're going to make a right, carefully crossing the street. It's hard to believe Paul Revere walked these very streets back in the 1770s. He probably would have stopped here at the Haymarket, an open-air street market open on Fridays and Saturdays. It's been held on this block in one form or another since the 1600s. Carefully cross Haymarket's crosswalk, and as you do, notice the bronze trash art embedded in the concrete to honor one of the country's oldest open-air markets. We are heading to the North End, Paul Revere's neighborhood. At the corner ahead, hit the crosswalk button and carefully cross the street. I'll meet you on the other side. Once you're across the street, look for the small gravel path immediately on your right. That's where we're headed. Make a right and go down this gravel path. In the 1770s, Paul Revere was in the pubs all the time. I mean, actually, regardless of the year, Paul Revere was in the pub all the time. And it's not just because he liked to drink, okay? Although, I'm sure that helped. He was in the pubs to meet with the first Patriot spy network in Boston, which is comprised of skilled artisans like Revere, who was a silversmith. This spiring was called the Mechanics and grew out of the Sons of Liberty. According to Revere, well, I'll just let him tell you. In the fall of 1774 and the winter of 1775, I was one of 30 who formed ourselves into a committee for the purpose of watching British soldiers and gaining every intelligence on their movements. Spies were really important to the resistance because they provided intelligence about the British. And by 1774, between Joseph Warren's contacts amongst the British, Sam Adams' eavesdropping at every pub in town, and Paul Revere's round-the-clock lurking, everyone was doing their part to make sure that the information was gleamed from the enemy and used to the colonists' advantage at every turn. When you get to the end of the path, turn left and walk toward the corner ahead. Paul Revere was deeply dedicated to the cause of independence. Oh, and of course, drinking. He was very committed to that as well. And what did he like to drink? One of the founding fathers' favorite libations was the Fish House Punch, a concoction of rum, cognac, and Boston's favorite import, black tea. You'll get to try a modern version of it at our next stop. When you get to the corner, wait for the signal and carefully cross the street. I'll meet you on the other side. Are you on the other side of the street? Keep walking in the same direction. There should be an old toll booth type building on your left. As you walk, take a quick look at the round Mass Pike logo from the 1950s on top of that building. 
See the guy on the horse? Guess who? Yep, Paul Revere is quite the legend around here. His infamous ride to alert the colonial militia that the British were coming just before the Battle of Lexington and Concord was dramatized in Longfellow's poem, Paul Revere's Ride. And in 1871, they even named a nearby town after him. Let's hope it all hasn't gone to his head. Ah, oh, shucks. You're making me blush. Keep heading straight towards the corner up ahead. So, a Revolutionary War was a coming, and an actual war means putting your life on the line for what you believe in. The people had to connect with the message of revolution and also feel that independence was a fight for every man. But a lot of the Founding Fathers wouldn't exactly fall into the category of every man. Sam Adams was afforded the advantages of his wealthy upbringing. Dr. Joseph Warren was a Harvard-educated doctor. Hell, John Hancock was the richest man in Boston. Last year I made $368. But Paul Revere. Paul Revere was a blue-collar guy. Although Revere did well as a silversmith, he didn't have that much education and wasn't born with any sort of privileged station. And the Founding Fathers realized that Revere's common status made him valuable to the cause. Carefully cross and continue walking across the street ahead. Let's keep walking in the same direction. Paul Revere may not have been a scholar, but what he lacked in formal education, he more than made up for in his resourcefulness. When the economy tanked in 1765, because of the Brits, of course, he took on a myriad of jobs to make ends meet. Oh, the street is going to fork up ahead. Follow the fork to the left. Although essentially self-taught, Revere was quite the dentist. And that's how he met Dr. Joseph Warren. Once they discovered that they shared the same political views and were members of the same Masonic Lodge, they became fast friends. Just past the fork, you should see a dark wooden house. Stop in front of that house. Stop here. The Revere family called this home. Paul and his wife raised 16 children here. You might notice this colonial house is not like the others. That's because it's one of the oldest homes left in Boston, from 1680. I mean, this house was nearly a hundred years old by the time Paul bought it, back in 1770. It was a bit of a fix-upper. How did Paul manage to be a successful silversmith, a leading revolutionary, a hearty drinker and comrade, and raise 16 children? With the help of his wife, of course. Oh yeah, that's how. Look across the street. That granite-lined courtyard is named Rachel Revere Square, after Revere's second wife. There's a large, light gray granite block with her name inscribed in the front. And she earned that square. She was the one who took care of his numerous kids while he was fighting for American freedom. But she wasn't the only important female figure of that time. Okay, let's head to our next watering hole. With your back to Paul's house, turn left and start walking in the same direction as before towards the corner ahead. You can almost picture Rachel chasing those 16 kids around the square. Actually, a lot of this neighborhood has remained unchanged since the 1700s. Kids from the Sacred Heart Church across the way to your right still play in this courtyard every day. As we walk, I'm going to tell you about one of the Revere's more unorthodox neighbors. Make a left at the corner head and keep walking. Just ahead on your left, you'll see an Italian restaurant called Artu, 
with a brown awning above the door. That's where we're headed. Stop here for a moment, out of the way of the door. This bar is on the spot where the Clark Franklin Mansion stood for nearly 150 years before and during the Revolution. Take a look at your phone. That's what the mansion looked like. And it was home to one of Boston's most unusual female socialites, Agnes Surridge. In a moment, we'll go inside, grab a seat at the bar, and order a drink. Now, it's not on the menu, but if you tell them you're with Detour, they'll make you their version of Fish House Punch, in honor of Paul and the other patriots. Okay, pause me and head inside, and press play when you're settled. You get a drink? Good. Take a look at your phone to see a punch bowl that Paul Revere made, possibly to serve his own fish house punch. Okay, so like I said, the spot where you're sitting used to be the very large home of Englishman Charles Henry Franklin. Franklin wasn't very popular in Boston. He was, after all, the king's tax collector. One day, Charles was out surveying land for potential forts in the small fishing village of Marblehead. He stopped at the Fountain Tavern for his midday beer, Lunch of Champions. A barmaid named Agnes brought him his drink, and he was immediately smitten. Then he noticed she was waiting tables with bare feet. As he was leaving, he gave her a gold coin to buy a pair of shoes. Later that summer, Charles found his way back to the Fountain Tavern, and to his surprise, Agnes was still barefoot. He asked her why she wasn't wearing shoes, and with a heavy rural Boston accent, she said, I'm saving him for Sunday. Charles was in love. And in true Eliza Doolittle style, Charles gave Agnes an education and they traveled the world together, even though she was 16 and he was 26. But on their travels through Europe, Charles was buried under a collapsed building in the Great Lisbon Earthquake of 1755. Agnes managed to round up enough people to pull him from the debris, saving his life. Charles proposed immediately and they returned to Boston and lived in this mansion right here. When Charles died in 1768, Agnes took over the estate. She had gone from a barefoot barmaid to a Boston socialite, a very unusual ascension in those days. And guess what? She has a plaque too. This one's on your phone, though. But regardless of what Agnes or Rachel achieved, there were limited opportunities for women in colonial Boston. But guess where women could get ahead? You should know the theme of the story by now. Taverns. Close to a quarter of the public houses in Boston were run by widows, and this gave them some real independence. That's a lot of bad bitches, if you ask me. Okay, if you need more time with your cocktail, pause me. When you're ready to leave, head out the way we came in. Hit play outside, and I'll be waiting for you. With the bar behind you, turn right and head back the way we came. We're going to the corner ahead. Hope all that rum's settled, because we're heading to a good old-fashioned looting. At the corner here, turn left and cross the street when it's safe. Keep walking with the street to your right. Our next stop has something very special, a plaque, and it's mounted on the side of a brick building ahead of you on your left. This plaque marks the house of colonist Thomas Hutchinson, Massachusetts governor from 1758 to 1774. Okay, stop at the plaque. 
The British military appointed Thomas Hutchinson to get control of the angry, disobedient, and drunk Bostonians leading up to the revolution. Not a real plum gig. In the Sons of Liberty's first act of organized resistance, they incited a drunk mob to ransack Hutchinson's mansion in 1765. Who was the chief agitator of the drunk mob? Why, it was Sam Adams, of course! After getting them drunk on the entire contents of another British official's wine cellar, Samuel Adams, along with his Sons of Liberty and his unruly mob, descended upon the house of Thomas Hutchinson. According to one observer, they were intoxicated, broke windows, threw furniture out into the street, and all in all did about 25,000 pounds worth of damage. In today's pounds, that's over 4 million pounds. And for you locals out there, that's over $5 million. The effort Sam Adams and his buddies made to harass Hutchinson paid off. And by 1774, he sailed off to England. Good riddance. Facing Hutchinson's house, turn right and walk to the end of the block. But Hutchinson was replaced by a new governor, Thomas Gage, who was given the explicit instructions to make sure the rebellious colonists behaved. Shit was about to get real. Sam Adams was in hot water. Given how many acts of rebellion Sam had led, he was at the top of the list when Gage was instructed to arrest the principal actors and abettors. John Hancock had his own particular issues with the Redcoats. Carefully cross the street ahead and make a left. Make a left and head to the corner. He was the richest man in Boston, rumored to have made his fortune by smuggling rum, molasses, and tobacco, amongst other products. At the corner, you're going to turn right. Things had gotten far too dangerous, and John Hancock and Sam Adams got the hell out of Dodge although they were only a few miles away in Lexington. By the spring of 1775, Paul Revere and Dr. Joseph Warren were the only Patriot leaders left in Boston. Sam Adams and John Hancock were not only influential in drafting plans for rebellion and leading the masses, they were also instrumental in storing weapons for the war they knew was coming. So in 1775, Sam Adams and John Hancock headed to Hancock's house in Lexington. Cross the small street ahead and continue walking. You should see a crosswalk just after the corner, right in front of the old St. Stephen Church. That's where we'll cross the street. While John Hancock and Samuel Adams were in Lexington, Paul Revere and Dr. Joseph Warren were keeping their ears to the ground here in Boston. And this is where young Sam Ballard comes back into the story. Take the crosswalk to your left across the street and walk into the park. Continue towards a statue in the middle of the park. Remember back at the Green Dragon? Young Sam overheard British plans to capture John Hancock and Sam Adams and seize the gunpowder. Stop in front of the statue. This is a statue of me and what I am most known for, my ride. And this is exactly how heroic and handsome I looked. On the evening of April 18, 1775, Sam Ballard warned Dr. Warren that the British troops stationed in Boston were marching to Concord. They would confiscate the Patriots' weapon stores, and most likely, they would also stop at Lexington to arrest Sam Adams and John Hancock. This was the outright act of aggression from the British that the rebels knew was coming. Okay, let's continue in the same direction through the park. With no time to lose, 
Joseph Warren sent young Sam Ballard to fetch Paul Revere from his local watering hole with one mission. Warn the Patriots that the Redcoats were coming for them. And as Longfellow once so famously penned, Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. When Dr. Warren's message reached him, Revere dropped his mug and began his now famously romanticized ride. But it wasn't some cowboy movie with Revere galloping through the villages. He was too stealthy for that. See the fountain up ahead? Go around it and keep walking in the same direction. Actually, Revere had already devised a plan to make sure that he was one step ahead of the advancing British army. I told the doc we should have a code. One if by land, two if by sea. Perhaps you've heard of it. Ahead of you, you should see a tall white church steeple. This is the Old North Church. Keep walking as you look. Paul's two brilliant lanterns hung at the top of that steeple and silently sounded the alarms. The British were coming by sea. These lanterns were part of an elaborate stealth communication system to keep the Rebel Alliance abreast of the movements of the British. When you get to the sidewalk, cross the street carefully. Turn left so the black gate is on your right and make your way down this narrow street. At 15, Paul Revere was a bell ringer at the Old North Church, and that's probably how he gained his knowledge of the church and its steeple in order to implement his plan. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. Turn right at the corner. Continue walking through this narrow alley to the corner ahead. Although Revere gets all the credit for the two lantern signals at the Old North Church, he didn't act alone. He had a friend. He was aided by Robert Newman, the sexton of the Old North Church. Sexton is a fancy word for groundskeeper, and most importantly, he was the guy who had the keys, which is the exact reason he was arrested the next day by the British troops. Robert Newman was well aware of the danger that his actions put him in, but he was not daunted. Turn right at the corner ahead. It was especially risky for Robert Newman to be involved because most of the congregation of the North Church at the time were loyal to the British crown. If just a whisper of Newman's involvement in this plot had reached one parishioner, everyone was done for. But Newman was able to keep his secret, deny his involvement, and was set free. He remained the sexton at the Old North Church until his death in 1804. Cross the street here, away from the church, and stop on the sidewalk directly across from the church. Okay, turn around and face the Old North Church and take another long look up at that tall steeple. Picture the lanterns that Revere hung over 240 years ago burning brightly. Okay, take a look up. We finally come to the mother of all plaques. The Old North Church plaque honoring Paul Revere sits on the very chapel in which he hung his lanterns, and I think he earned it. Facing Old North Church, make a left and head down the block. We are going to one of the oldest cemeteries in Boston, Copps Hill. Now back to the midnight ride. Paul Revere tore out on his horse as fast as he could through the streets of Boston, across the river to Charlestown, where he allegedly chugged two pints of rum to steal himself, and on to Lexington, beating the British just in time to warn John Hancock and Sam Adams. And famously, Revere alerted every single town along the way, stopping at the local taverns, of course, to get the word out. 
I did not yell, the British are coming, the British are coming. I was a master spy, for Christ's sake. The first shots of war rang out the next morning at Lexington in front of a, it's a shocker, a tavern, and the battle for American independence had officially begun. When the news of the skirmishes at Lexington and Concord reached Boston, Joseph Warren left his patients in the care of his assistant and rode off to join the battle. Make a left at this corner. Warren said, Now is no time for any American children to shrink from any hazard. I will set her free or die. The Massachusetts militia created a blockade, effectively trapping the Redcoats in the city. Thus began the Siege of Boston. Carefully cross the driveway ahead and continue walking. The Patriot leaders took to the surrounding areas. Dr. Joseph Warren, the only rebel left in the city, spent the next six weeks tirelessly preparing for the inevitable battles that were to come. With their blockade, the colonial militia effectively controlled all land routes in and out of Boston. But with their superior naval power, the British dominated the water routes surrounding Boston. Essentially, it was a stalemate, and it was imperative that one side take the unoccupied hills surrounding Boston and get the advantage of higher ground. On June 18th of 1775, the British planned to mount an attack, break into Boston, and secure the land. But there was one little problem. The Patriots knew what they were up to and decided that they were going to beat them to it. Master Spy Network, remember? Just past this building on your left, you'll see a cemetery. This is Copps Hill Cemetery. You should see a gate up ahead. Stop just before that gate. With the cemetery gate to your left, turn right and carefully cross the street to the top of the concrete stairs on the other side. Stop there. Stop at the top of the staircase. See the hills on the other side of the water? You'll have to look closely past all the newer buildings along the shore. That is the higher ground that both sides sought to capture, Breed's Hill. With Copps Hill Cemetery behind you and the harbor in front of you, look to the left an inch forward until you see the obelisk jutting out of the horizon, a large white stone pointed tower. This obelisk is the Bunker Hill Monument, where the battle to control that higher ground took place. On June 16th of 1775, two days before the British were set to attack, a thousand colonial militiamen headed to Breed's Hill to fortify the area and dig in. But the British caught wind of what was happening, and they sprang into action. The British set up their cannons right here to shoot at the colonists across the water at Breed's Hill in Charlestown. Thus began the fight for Breed's Hill, or as it's more commonly known, the Battle of Bunker Hill. Now you might be wondering, hey, why is it called the Battle of Bunker Hill if it took place on Breed's Hill? That's because the Redcoats were idiots. They had a mislabeled map, and actually the hill behind Breed's Hill with the church on top, that's Bunker's Hill. Turn and face the staircase. You should see the concrete terrace landing below. Head down the staircase in front of you. Turn left at the bottom and walk to the center of the landing just in front of the waist-high wall. Stop for a moment and look out across the water. Dr. Joseph Warren, still in Boston, learned that the British forces were attacking the soldiers at Breed's Hill. 
He rode through the battle lines into the fray to join the fight with his fellow rebels. I am only here as a volunteer. Tell me where I can be most useful. The Doc fought alongside his fellow patriots valiantly, but to no avail. The colonial militia lacked the firepower to overtake the Redcoats. The Redcoats seized Breed's Hill and the colonial army retreated, and the British burned what remained of Charlestown to the ground. The colonial army suffered a loss of 400 men at Bunker Hill and an important loss of ground. The Bunker Hill Monument not only marks where the battle took place, but serves as a monument to all those brave men who lost their lives that day. But of the 400 lives lost, one hit Paul Revere and the Patriots especially hard. Dr. Joseph Warren, while attempting to protect the last of the rebel forces fleeing Breed's Hill, was shot at close range by a British officer who recognized him as one of the leaders of the rebellion. Warren was then tossed into a shallow mass grave. A year later, while sifting through the charred remains of Charlestown, Paul Revere identified the body of his friend. He recognized a false tooth that he had made for him before the war. Bunker Hill was by no means a victory, but the fledgling ragtag Continental Army proved that they were a formidable force not to be messed with. The colonists didn't back down one bit, and on March 17th of 1776, the Redcoats officially surrendered and were allowed to retreat out of Boston. Now in Boston, we celebrate March 17th as evacuation day. But do you know what else is celebrated then? St. Patrick's Day, Boston's favorite holiday. Why? Because we still love a good drink. And the rest, as they say, is history. So this, my friend, is where I'm going to leave you. But there is one more important bar for you to check out for a final round. Take a look at Breed's Hill again, because that's where it is. Built in 1780, the Warren Tavern was one of the first buildings constructed after Charlestown was leveled by the British. And of course, they rebuilt a tavern first. And the Warren Tavern is not only the oldest tavern in Massachusetts, it's also named after Dr. Joseph Warren. So you know you gotta check it out. You can use a ride-sharing app to head to Charlestown. It's literally a five-minute ride over that awesome bridge in the distance to your left. See the staircase to your right? At the bottom of those stairs is Commercial Street, which is an easy place for a car to pick you up. Follow the stairs all the way to the sidewalk and call your rideshare from there. Be sure to double-check that your pickup location is on Commercial Street so the driver can find you. Go ahead and request your ride. And when you get to the Warren Tavern, be sure to hoist a pint and pour one out for our dear friend, Dr. Warren. Hey, Sam, do you want to do the honors? To the memory of all fearless patriots who have fallen for our freedom, we salute their fighting spirit with our favorite spirits. Hear, hear to the revolution! revolution.